All right. Unfortunately, we can't live stream, but hopefully this will record and I can use it, hopefully. If not, and hopefully Stacy's phone works as a hotspot so that I can have my notes. So we got a lot of, of possible things could go wrong tonight. All right. We have been working on a Tertullian on baptism. I did uh, two live broadcasts for the podcast, kind of advancing this a little bit. If you missed those, well, I'm not going to go back and review everything. Um, we looked at, uh, if you remember, I'm going to try to go, I'm afraid to go too far back, but I'm just going to go all the way back. Uh, we, we looked at chapter one, where he kind of introduced uh, his kind of basic co- concept that it was a sacrament, and basically that, the wa- you know, with water, we wash away our sins. He talked about all of that. Uh, he gave the reason why he was writing, because of the Canite heresy, right? And uh, we discussed that. Then in chapter 2, he talked about the very uh, simplicity of God's means of working, a stumbling block to the carnal, carnal mind, that God can work in a way that seems simple or foolish, but it can actually be something amazing. So baptism looks foolish or carnal, so obviously it has to be something amazing. He kind of just kind of makes that that jump in and kind of logic. He doesn't really try to prove anything. He just kind of goes with this idea. Please note that in chapter 2, I do want to make sure we see this, um, he does use this phrase, um, without expense, a man is dipped in water and amid the utterance of some few words is sprinkled and then rises again, not much or not at all. Now, please note, dipped in water then talks about being sprinkled. So you may not quite understand what's going on here with Tertullian, but he, uh, I, he's starting to give kind of an idea of maybe how baptism was working somewhere between 197 and 200-something A.D. It seems like there was a dipping in water, but there was a sprinkling. What is he referring to? As you move a little forward into the book, you'll, we'll get a better idea. Then in chapter 3, Water was a chosen, uh, water chosen as a vehicle of divine operation and wherefore its prominence, first of all, all in creation. And remember how he starts trying to make an argument for why water works? Does everybody remember his basic argument? Well, not the angels. Yeah, from the very beginning, there's water. And what was hovering over the water? The spirit. Okay, and so somehow he's like, see, that, that makes water... It does something. Water has some kind of power, some kind of effect. And then, and then, and then someone would say, and Yog, and Yog, Yog made the argument before he even tried to make the argument. Someone said, well, wait a minute. If, because he tried to give the idea that water brought forth life. And then someone said, well, wait a minute. God created Adam out of dust. And then he already, right, knowing that argument was coming, made the argument. But that dust had it was moist and juicy. It had water in it. So therefore, it still counts as a picture of baptism. Remember how kind of like crazy that was? And we, we, we did laugh, but it, I mean, it was kind of like, what in the world is this, right? You're like, what is this? All right, then in the next chapter, chapter four, I don't know if you guys heard this discussion, but the primeval hovering of the Spirit of God over the waters, typical of baptism, the universal element of water thus made a channel of sanctification, resemblance between the outward sign and the inward grace. And I worked all the way through this chapter. I don't know if you heard it. 
Um, it's somewhat of a long chapter, but once again, he talks about basically how water is somehow endued with a virtue, with kind of a power. And it's almost like he almost lists, it's the liquid substance that he seems to focus on. It's, it's like he, he tries not to, he, he kind of is aware of what he's doing, but at the same time, he can't seem to stop himself. Right? That it's the water, the water, the water, the water, the water, the water. Uh, but yet he tries to connect it with, with God to some way, shape, or form. It's kind of a really odd thing the way it, it, it works. All right? um, and, well, I'm not going to spend much time trying. I almost want to go back over the whole chapter, but that's okay. Then in chapter 5, did we cover chapter 4 here? I, I'm still thinking we did. We didn't cover chapter four here? Okay, well, I thought we did. Maybe I just did on the podcast. Then chapter five. Chapter five, anybody know uh, if you're looking? Use made of water by the heathen and the type of the angel at the pool of Bethsaida, right? So then he's going to talk about how the heathen used water in all of their rituals, Right? So that the heathen understood that, hey, if you've murdered someone, if you did something bad, guess what you need? To be washed in water to wash away your guilt. And and so his argument is kind of this weird thing. Like I could argue, because some of those heathen uh, practices predates Christianity. So I could argue, well, wait a minute. Maybe Christians was adopting these ideas and brought it into Christianity. He's arguing that no, 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 the, the power of water is just because it's been there since Genesis, it's just kind of written on man's heart. So whenever man does something wrong, they look to water. But I'm saying you can make the argument either way, right? Do you see how the argument can be made either way? Or as everybody understand what I'm trying to say? Right? That, wait a minute. If all of these heathens are using these like washings to wash away sin, maybe Christians adopted that practice. He's arguing, no, 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 Christians didn't adopt the practice. The concept predates, all the way back to the beginning, predates the heathen, and the heathen just understood the significance of water just somehow inside. It's just they understood it. Does that make sense? I hope so. So we'll go through, um, I, I, well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through uh, that chapter because I've already covered this as well, all right? Um, and like, I'll just say, I'll just read a little bit here. Uh, why, why have we adduced these instances? Lest anything, I think it too hard for belief that a holy angel of God should grant his presence to waters to tempt, temper them to man's salvation well, the evil angel holds frequent profane commerce with the selfsame elements to man's ruin. If it seems a novelty for an angel to be present in waters, an example of what was to come to pass has a forerun. An angel, by his intervention, want to stir the pull at, and in which, where is he getting ready to quote from? Yeah, John. What, what chapter? Find it. Do you find it? it? It's not in John 1 through 4. 
So what comes after four? Oh, it's in five. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> no, I know, I had it I had it right here. I was seeing if y'all could find it. I, I knew where it was. Okay. All right. So here we are, verse one. Chapter 5, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called, in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda. I think in, uh, he has it spelled differently in his uh, writing. He has it spelled B-E-T-H-S-A-I-D-A, Bethsaida, Bethsaida, but you get it. Or Bethesda. All right, everybody got it? All right, so, but please note, so let's look at what happens, all right? Now, there, there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the movement of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, water Whatsoever, then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, let's stop right here. How should we understand verse 4? This is a major argument for Tertullian. Well, that's what is being reported. There we go. Is this reporting something that actually happened, or is this reporting something that was a tradition, a superstition that the people believed happened? Because it would seem weird that the angel would come, that an angel of God would come and just artificially stir water, and then the first person got in got healed, but the second person was out of luck. Does that not seem an odd story to you? Yes, no? Yes. It seems like an, it seems like an odd story, right? Yeah, we don't know of any. It's just it just seems like almost like this was like a, a tradition. I'm going to look. I'm just going to artificially just grab a a study Bible and see if they say anything about it. Okay? Grab uh the Bible dictionary and see what they say in regards to this. All right? Okay, uh, you don't have a Bible dictionary? All right, I'm going to read from this commentary. Are you listening really quick? It was a custom at the time for the people with infirmities to gather at the pool. Uh, intermittent springs may have fed the pool and caused the disturbance of the water. Some ancient witnesses indicated that the waters of the pool were red with minerals and thus thought to have medicinal value. MacArthur views it, it was just a, it was just a, like a story, a legend, that they, that they, there was some kind of spring that made the water at certain times move, and they were like, oh, it's an angel! And because it had like a reddish color, they thought it had medicinal value, and so this was more just a tradition. And they were desperate. That it wasn't like, this is actually happening. This is a story. Tertullian takes it as, this was, this is proof, right? What does the Bible dictionary say? In regards to it. 
It says, Bethesda, a pool in the northeastern part of Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. At this pool, Jesus healed the man who had infirmity. Infirmity, 38 years. Archaeologists have discovered pools in the vicinity. Um, the, the shorter ports, they go talk about it. The man who had been lame for 38 years came to the pool hoping to be cured by its miraculous waters. Instead, was healed by the word of Jesus. Please note, they don't even talk about an angel. They talk about the miraculous Waters, which means, seems the idea that they thought the waters had medicinal value and that they had attached some superstition to it. Now, that's, this is very critical to Tertullian's whole argument. Yeah, there, there, we have no record of anyone actually being healed. And it would be weird that, in, that, the, that God would send an angel to Bethesda, right? Stir the water. All right. Who's first? Boom. I'm in. I get healed. Like that just makes, that's, that, that has superstition written all over it. Does everyone not agree? Now, if that's true, then that, does that not destroy Tertullian's entire argument? Because his entire argument, how do we know water can do this? Because God can use an angel to make the water do it. But we don't know if, Right? Yeah, that, that, that seems to be more of a story. Well, he... he, he, he right, well, but he tries, he tries to say the water, but he tries to connect it to God. So, he, so as, as, let me go back and read that part where he says this, um, because it, it, it seems crazy, but this is what he does. Uh, lest any think it's too hard to believe that a holy angel of God should grant his presence to water to temper them to man's salvation, while the evil angel holds frequently profane commerce with the selfsame elements to man's ruin, if it seems a novelty for an angel to be present in waters, an example of what was to come to pass has forerun. An angel, by his intervention, want to store to stir the pool at Bethsaida, they who were complaining of ill health used to watch for him, for whoever had been first to descend into them of his washing ceased to complain. This figure of corporal healing, saying of a spiritual healing, according to the rule by which things carnal are always antecedents, as figurative of things spiritual. So he's, his whole argument is, see, what happened at that pool? That proves what happens to us in baptism. Because physical healing is an antecedent to spiritual healing. And how did they get healed? By going into the water. Why did they get healed by the water? Because an angel was connected to it. And so, how do we know water can do this? Because how did water begin? Spirit hovering over it. That's his, that's his whole trying to make his whole argument. But, if, but he's assuming that this story is, like, it actually happened, and I don't know, I'm... That, that's not the way I think it's, it's, being, it's being told that these people were holding on, basically, to this fictional idea, and then Jesus healed up, and someone actually, actually got healed. Right? Does that make sense? It says, and thus... When the grace of God advanced to higher degrees among men, an accession of efficacy was granted to the waters and to the angel. Those who were wont to remedy bodily defects now healed the spirit. They who used to work temporal salvation now renew eternal. 
They who did set free but once in a year now saves people in a body daily, being death done away through the ablution, uh, the ablution of sins. The guilt being removed, of course, the penalty is removed too. Thus man will be restored for God to his likeness, who in days by gone had been conformed to the image of God. The image is counted to be in his form, the likeness and his eternity. For he receives again the Spirit of God, which he had then first received from his afflatus, but had afterward lost through sin. Bottom line is, is by water what happens? The image is restored, or restored, and it all happens. And how do we know this happens? Because in John 5, supposedly an angel came and stirred up water and healed people, even though we don't have any account of it actually happening. Which I, I think actually, if that was happening, it doesn't make Jesus healing the man that miraculous, does it? Yeah, he didn't have to be first, but I'm just saying, I mean, like, that, that doesn't seem like, that, doesn't, that would almost take away from Jesus' miraculous thing. Like, okay, Jesus healed, well, the water can do it anyway. So, um, it just seems odd that that was what he would try to prove his point. All right, the next chapter. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, there's, it's missing in a lot of manuscripts, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's missing a lot of... Uh, yeah, 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 there, there's a, a lot of textual issues there as well, yeah. But even if you put it there, I don't think it's recorded there to go, look, we need to go find the pools where angels stir water. I think the whole point was they were grasping and Jesus came and actually healed. I think the point was to show the superiority over Jesus over their superstition, but okay. All right, now... Next, the angel, the forerunner of the Holy Spirit, meaning contained in the baptismal formula. Now that in the waters we obtain the Holy Spirit, not that in the waters we obtain the Holy Spirit, but in the waters, under the witness of the angel, we are cleansed and prepared for the Holy Spirit. In this case also, a type has proceeded. For thus was John beforehand the Lord's forerunner. So what he wants to say is, okay, when we get baptized, we don't get the Spirit because of the baptism. We get cleansed so that we can get the Spirit. And he says, what's the the example of this is what? John the Baptist. Everybody with me? All right, everybody good? Yes? All right. Thus, too, does the angel, the witness of baptism, make the path straight for the Holy Spirit, who's about to come upon us by the washing away of sins, which faith sealed in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit obtains. Right? For if in the mouth of three witnesses every word shall stand, while through the benediction we have the same three as witnesses of our faith, whom we have as a surety of our salvation too. Now, stop right here. There's a couple of things to look at. This seems to be inferring that the person baptized has what? 
What does Tertullian seems to be implying here in this section? The one who's baptized. What does he seem to be inferring here? Do I need to read that again? Okay, sins are washed away, but there's another very important point here. All right, I'll read this again. All right, so this is important. Thus, too, does the angel, the witness of baptism, make the path straight for the Holy Spirit, who's about to come upon us by the washing away of our sins, which, if you're reading along, faith sealed in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit obtains, for if in the mouth of three witnesses every word shall stand, while through the benediction we have the same three witnesses of our faith. So what is he implying about the people baptized? They have faith. Does everybody understand the significance of that? Okay, this would, this would go against the infant idea, right? They don't have faith, right? Or, or you have to argue that the baptism gives them faith. So you either have to argue baptism gives an infant faith, or you have to argue that the infant has faith, but how can an infant who's not saved have faith? That would make no sense, right? So you'd have to have baptism creating the faith, but then there would be no way to prove that an infant has faith, right? Still doesn't make sense. So this seems to be inferring that the people baptized had what? Faith, which would go more along with the idea of the Didache, right? Because the Didache seemed to clearly, the idea that what had to happen before someone could be baptized according to the Didache. Teaching. Right. Okay. Yeah, they were instructed. And fasting. Remember the fasting? Yeah. Instruction and fasting. All right. So this, I'm just saying that he seems to imply that the people here have faith. I, don't, I just don't think we can miss that, right? All right. So have the same three witnesses of our faith whom, who we have assurities of our salvation too. How much more does the number of the divine names suffice for the assurance of our hope likewise? Moreover, after the pledging, both of the... Adist, adist, I can read the word right. Attestation of faith and the promise of salvation under three witnesses, there is added of necessity mention of the church insomuch as wherever there are three, that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is the church, which is the body of three. Okay? So, he, once again, he talks about our faith, Talks about the witnesses. Now we can get into the whole church concept here, but that's irregardless. The point is, this chapter seems to bring some idea that the people being baptized have faith. That's probably the main thing to try to draw from this. Okay? Does that make sense? All right? I hope, I hope it does. I hope it does. I know, but he wants to get, the main thing he wants us to get from this is that, hey, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, something is confirmed. And in baptism... We have two or three witnesses, and that is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I just want to take from it, 
He's seeming to infer that the people have faith. He mentions our faith, faith. He mentions it how many times here? Um, uh, which faith is sealed um, of our faith. See here, the pledging. You see here. Yeah, and then he mentions faith again. So I think it's mentioned three times. I think it's mentioned three times. So I'm not saying we can be dogmatic about what he's saying, but it definitely seems to be inferring that concept. All right, next chapter. Okay, of the unction. All right, let's do this. Look up the word unction. Let's, let's see if we make sure we have an, an idea of what he's referring to here. That's a good question. Just normal dictionary. Unction. Seven, I believe. There we go. All right. Unction is the anointing of oil. Now, this is very, 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 very important. All right. Remember that Tertullian has already given us the idea that we are, that we are baptized into the water, right? But he's also given the idea that there's a sprinkling. Everybody got that? So how do we, how do we understand that? How can there be like a baptizing in the water and a sprinkling? Well, this may give us a little clue. Maybe there, the, the, uh, there was a, a, an elaborate process that took place at this time. Okay, listen to this. Here we go. After this, when we have issued from the font, we are thoroughly anointed with a blessed unction, a practice derived from the old discipline, wherein on entering the priesthood, men were wont to be anointed with oil from a horn ever since Aaron was anointed by Moses. When Aaron is called Christ from the chrism, which is the unction, which, when made spiritual, furnished an appropriate name to the Lord because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit of God, the Father, as written in the Acts. For truly they were gathered together in the city against the Holy Son, whom thou hast anointed. Thus too, in our case, the unction runs carnally on the body, but profits spiritually. Now listen, this is the key sentence in this chapter. In the same way, as the act of baptism itself too is carnal, in that we are plunged in water, but the effect spiritual and that we are freed from sins. So it seems that there was a practice that went something like this. You're plunged in water and what happens after you're plunged in water? You're anointed with oil. And that oil was either rubbed on or sprinkled on so you were anointed with oil, or poured on in some way, but somehow you were anointed with oil. So there were two concepts going on here. But what did he just say about the water? But what did he say how it happens? Plunged into water. Plunged into water. So he has seemingly affirmed that those who are baptized have faith and that those who are baptized, are, what happens to them? 
They're plunged into water. And then after that, anointed with oil. And he, and he possibly made an allusion to that earlier by referring to a sprinkling that we get. So that would mean that the way it worked was there was faith, there was immersion, and then there was anointing. This was the system. This sounds very different than what? The Didache. The Didache. The Didache. This, had, this is clearly moved forward and becoming more complicated. All right, now this leads... Right, it's going back to Aaron, yes. But remember that the idea is that we're all made priests in Christ. Right. But the point is, is he's saying that the practice goes back to Aaron. But now that after we're baptized, people were anointed at this time. The, the point we wanted, what we want to derive from, where, what we're, just make sure we understand. I'm not trying to understand every little word within Tertullian. That's not the goal here, right? The, the series is the early, baptism in the early church. So I'm not trying to figure out every little concept and idea because that would take forever. I'm trying to go through this and go, what do we learn about baptism in Tertullian? Just saying like what I did the Didache. Did I go through the entire Didache? I just looked at that and just focused on the baptism part, right? So the baptism part, what, we're, what I'm trying to get us to see is he's got a weird argument about baptism that somehow the water... But then he wants to connect an angel to the water, and he, but, but he's all water, 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 water. Okay, well, even many people who hold to some kind of baptismal regeneration probably would not even follow his train of logic and reason and would argue against it. So it immediately shows, well, wait a minute. You're go because remember the people people always argue this about infant baptism. Well, the early church, there well, go to the early church. This is some strange stuff, is it not? Okay, so they're not going to agree with all of that. That's the first point. Showing that there was a lot of crazy things going on. Number two, what I want to demonstrate is he's not been emphatic, but he seems to refer to the people being baptized as having faith. Right? Okay. That, we, that in a sense, we attest, we, we demonstrate our faith. Our, he talks about our faith in that chapter three times. That's, I can't just pass that up. Then he clearly seems that we are baptized into water. Here he's emphatic. Plunged into water. There's clearly immersion. But then he does talk about a sprinkling, but that sprinkling is not baptism. That's what? The anointing with oil. Well, if you're going to say, well, the early church, the early church, the early church, the early church. Well, then you need to do it this way too. So far, so good? Does that make sense? All right, now the next chapter. What's the next chapter? The imposition of hands. Types of the deluge and the dove. All right, yeah, we're going to go straight typology and allegorical because that's, that's the, the only way they seem to be able to make their argument, which is just where it there tells you that there's problems. But let's see where he goes with this. All right, everybody ready? All right, if I mess up any words, someone correct me. Okay, all right, here we go. In the next place, the hand is laid on us. Now, please note, how does he begin this chapter? In the next place. Okay, in the next place. There's three steps. Plunging into water, 
anointing, and then something's getting ready to happen next. And what's going to happen next? In the next place, the hand is laid on us, invoking and inviting the Holy Spirit through benediction. Shall it be granted possible for human ingenuity to summon a spirit into water and by the application of hands from above to animate their union into one body with another spirit of so clear sound? And shall it not be possible for God in the case of his own organ to produce by means of holy hands a sublime spiritual modulation? Now, he's gonna get, it's going to get crazy here. Let's try to simplify it. What seems to be the concept here that's being established? It seems the person being baptized has what? Faith. What do they not have? They don't have the Holy Spirit. They get baptized. How do they get baptized? Plunged into water. They still don't have the Holy Spirit. They get anointed with oil. They still don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, how do they get the Holy Spirit? Laying on of hands. Which means that a person just baptized would not have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, a person who believes would not have the Holy Spirit according to this. According to this, a person baptized would not have the Holy Spirit. They have to go through the entire process, the entire ritual. Now, let's see what he's going to do here, right? But this, as well as the former, is derived from the old sacramental rite in which Jacob blessed his grandsons, born of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manassas, with his hands laid on them and interchanged and indeed so transversely slanted one over the other that by delineating Christ, they even Port ended the future benediction into Christ. That's wordy, but what he's trying to say is something about the blessing. Okay, produced something. Something spiritual tra- transpired. I, I, well, maybe, I put it this way. That would sound like the church fathers, wouldn't it? Cross. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I I would not be shocked by that. I mean, we we've talked about how the church fathers uh, interpreted things, right? Everything was symbolic. So I would not be shocked by that at all, in any way, shape, or form. That that's where he's going. My my main concern is, well, wait a minute. So now I don't get the Holy Spirit until someone lays hands on me. Okay, that most people don't go with this idea. But you're right, that's pretty cr- But let's see, I bet, you, I bet you there's even more typology, all right? All right? Because, and indeed, so transversely slanted one over the other that by delineating Christ, they even port ended the future benediction into Christ. Then over our cleansed and blessed bodies willingly descends from the Father that holiest spirit, spirit over the waters of baptism, recognizing, as it were, his primeval seat. He reposes... He who gilded down on the Lord in the shape of a dove in order that the nature 
of the Holy Spirit may be declared by means of the creature, the emblem of simplicity and innocence, because even her bodily structure, the dove, is without literal gall. And accordingly, he says, be ye simple as doves, even this is not without the supporting evidences of a preceding figure. For just as after the waters of the deluge, by which the old iniquity was purged, after the baptism, so to say, of the world, a dove was the herald which announced to the earth the assuagement of celestial wrath when she had been sent her way out of the ark and had returned with the olive branch, a sign which even among the nations is a foretoken of peace. So by the selfsame law of heavenly effect to earth, that is to our flesh, as it emerges from the font. After its old sins uh, flies the dove of the Holy Spirit, bringing us the peace of God sent out from the heavens, where is the church, the typified ark. But the world returned unto sin, in which point baptism would ill be compared to the deluge. So it is destined to fire, just as man too is, who after baptism renews his sins. Stop right here. We got a lot of issues going on. All right. Now, what is he using for a symbol? He used Joseph and possibly crossed hands. And then he uses the flood. Now, on one, the deluge. Now, on one hand, he says the flood baptized the world and washed away their sins. Okay, well, it's kind of weird that you would paint that as baptism because it kills a bunch of people, right? Okay, the people who were saved in the flood didn't get wet. The people who got wet died. So that's a weird typology, right? Right? I mean, like, that's not the way, like, already that's weird. Okay, so baptism, but, but baptism supposedly washed the sins away of the world. And then after that, what showed up? The dove, which is the Holy Spirit. So now what does he want to picture from that? After we're baptized, what shows up? In a sense, the dove, the Holy Spirit. We get the, bab- we get the Holy Spirit after baptism. All right? That's, that's, that's where this is derived from. Okay? And, of course, he's already kind of alluded to Christ. After Christ ba- baptized and Holy Spirit sins like a dove, that's, that's where they're getting the, the idea from. But here's the thing. He realizes his story has somewhat of a problem, Yes? The world returns to sin. So because the world returns to sin, what's now waiting for the world? Fire. And then do you see what he does? Even though baptism washes away sin, even though baptism supposedly saves, according to Tertullian, what happens if you return to your sins after your baptism? Uh, And so it is destined to fire just as the man too who after baptism renews his sins so that this also ought to be accepted as a sign of our admonition. In other words, if you return to your sins after baptism, you're going to be burned. You're going to go to hell. Okay, well, first... Immediately, this shows. I, but, I, but I admire the consistency here in some ways, right? 
Okay, because what ticks me off are people like, say, a Lutheran who's like, no, 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 no. We are not saved by law. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. But baptism regenerates. However, if you do bad, then you lose your salvation. Well, the minute you say I lose my salvation based on what I do, then I'm not saved by grace. I'm saved by works. Catholics are more consistent on it because they say baptism just does what? Washes away original sin and infuses you with righteousness, and then you have to cooperate with the righteousness. So if you return to mortal sin, then you lose saving grace. At least Catholics are consistent with this. I get more frustrated with certain Presbyterians or certain Lutherans who are like, no, we believe in an imputed righteousness. But if you baptize that baby and they get older and walk away from it, they lost it. Well, that's not imputed righteousness. Catholics are consistent. That, that's, that's my problem here. But clearly, so according to him, this is how it works. So let's go through this. This is how it works. There seems to be faith. The person is plunged, anointed, laying on hands, get the Holy Spirit. However, if they return to their sin, they're going to go to hell. Now, earlier, though, he says that baptism washes away our sins and gives us what kind of life? He says eternal life. Clearly, it doesn't give eternal life. And what would be the obvious question anyone should ask at this point? What's the obvious question you should ask? If you were hearing this instruction from Tertullian, what sin's going to make me burn? If I return to one sin? If I return to two sins? Any sins? 15, 30, 40, 50? And what happened to eternal life? Now, I thought water had this amazing power. Obviously, it's not that powerful. I don't, what, what, the Holy Spirit doesn't even do, do you any good. I mean, but he just says, return to your sins, plural. So it could be, we don't know which sins. Right? Is it plural? Return to your sins? Yeah. Yeah, sin, plural. So it, I don't know. I don't know which sins. So immediately we know that immediately this is starting to deny which doctrine? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, and salvation by imputed righteousness. It's denying it. Remember, that's my whole issue with so much of it. Like, that's why when it comes to infant baptism, people are like, well, the early church, the early church. And I'm like, the early church would have denied over and over and over again a salvation by an imputed righteousness. You just got to acknowledge that. That, that, that. What Catholics always argue, uh, Sarah, on Catholic radio? Yeah, that, 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 no, no, no. The early church didn't believe that. And, and Catholics would be right there. So if you're going to say, what, you need to, you Baptists, y'all don't like church history. You should be baptizing your babies. That's what the early church did. Well, let's go with the early church and let's throw out the doctrine of being saved by imputed righteousness and let's go to a works-based system. And ju- just go to the Catholic church. I, I, it, it, the arrogance from pre- Presbyterians and Lutherans 
it ticks me off because they act like you Baptists are just stupid and you've never read church history. And that's so, that's just so garbage. We, we had someone who used to go here a long, 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 long time ago who left here and went to a Presbyterian church. And then I had at least a couple of email exchanges and basically told me, well, you, you never read Calvin and you don't understand the covenants. I'm like, you're right. I've never read Calvin. I don't understand the covenants. You're right. I'm just an idiot. Yeah, I'm just, you're right. Never read Calvin one time. Never. I'm just like, that's so, and, and do, do you see where, what I supposedly didn't understand? I didn't. He didn't say I didn't understand the Bible. <laughs> I, I didn't understand Calvin. Okay. Like, Calvin's not my authority. Right? Calvin said a lot of things, right? Okay, right? I mean, come on. Like, you know, that, like, that's just, re- it's so, it's such a dumb argument. Like, you don't hear yourself that my problem is I haven't read Calvin. Well, Show me the scripture that I'm not under. Oh, yeah, that all those scriptures where those babies are being baptized. Don't you see them? They're all over the place. Yeah, that I hadn't read Calvin. I didn't understand the covenants. And you're like, you're right. I, and first, anyone who knows me knows I've read Calvin. Calvin, we got every, everything from Calvin right back there in the library. We've got all of his commentaries. And what do I always say about the Institutes of the Christian Religion? I won't even ordain someone who hasn't at least read the first couple of chapters of the... So give me a break. That's just such, a, that's such an arrogant thing. And then when I had that big, got ambushed by the people on the internet about infant baptism, the same thing. You guys just don't know church history. You're right. My church has never studied church. We're just stupid hicks from Texas, don't know anything about church history. It's like, they were so arrogant and condescending. Like, they didn't even know me. Anybody who knows me knows we study church history here all the time. I'm very aware Right now, I'm reading the Apostolic Fathers, a new translation. I'm going to be reading that through this whole year. I'm going to read the, all the Apostolic Fathers again. What are we doing right now? <laughs> and, 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 and guess what? I don't think I'm ignorant of church history to go, I think Tertullian was a little whacked in the head. Now, I will, I'm not going to blame him for having some of these weird ideas. He didn't, I mean, there wasn't even a completed canon yet. So I can understand trying to figure this out. But my thing is, I can read Tertullian and I will respect what he says as much as I can. Some of it just sounds totally bizarre to me. But guess what I'm going to ultimately rely on? And the best argument for trying to say infant baptism in the Bible would be what? Well, they try to use Acts 2. Acts 2, because the promise is for you and your children, but that doesn't seem to necessarily mean baptism is going to save, because right, under, right after that, 3,000 were baptized who gladly received the word, and we don't have one record of any baby being baptized on that day. Didn't they all have babies? Then we do have a couple, five occurrences of, of what's called household baptisms. I think three of the ca- passages seem to clearly make it clear that the whole house believed, and then the other two, you just have to assume... There had to be a baby there. But if you go with that logic, right? Like at one point, how many kids did y'all have in your house? Seven. Okay, seven, because I don't know how it all worked. Okay, seven kids. Let's say finally Sarah gets saved, right? Say seven kids, Sarah gets saved. Does that just automatically then everyone in the house gets baptized just because Sarah got saved? That would go beyond just an infant. That would go, hey, you're 15, you're getting baptized. 
I mean, if, if you're going to say household baptism, that means anyone in the house. At your house, at any time, there's been 47, 50, 100 people in the Pierce house. I don't know how many people. Half a Tuscola at any given time, right? Does that mean one person gets saved in Bobby's house? Everyone just automatically gets baptized? It doesn't work. Like, that doesn't, the logic, the logic to say, well, they had to have a baby in the house. Did they? Because Abram and Sarah went a long time without having a baby in the house. How long? Yeah, they were a long, when they're in their 70s, okay, it was a long time. Or 90, right, there you go. So I'm just saying a long time. So the point is, is that that's just like, well, but see, how, you would think something as significant as baptizing a baby to save it would be pretty clearly delineated in Scripture, and I, and I think Sarah has said this multiple times, whenever you deal with the supposed salvation of babies, with almost fail, everyone abandons what? That we're saved by faith. So either we're saved by faith, or we're saved by, baptism gives faith. And if baptism gives faith, then the child should grow up and keep the faith. But so many kids baptized don't keep the faith, so then, if the faith God gave them, they don't keep that. Like there, you see, there's so many problems with the whole no, issue. Do what? Yeah, they, well, they didn't have the hands laid on them, or they didn't get the Holy Spirit. Something went wrong. Okay, but I, it's just, I just, it's just so frustrating when I talk about this subject because it's just there's always this arrogance that you just didn't read church history, and it's like maybe I did. And I I'm not bound by it. I'm not bound by it. Remember, what, was Lu- what, would, what did Luther try to argue with the Catholic Church? He tried to use Augustine. So whenever people get into these arguments, everybody wants to run to the church fathers and make an argument. But what does everyone do with the church fathers? Use them to our own advantage, and we take what we want and disregard anything we don't. And that's not the, I mean, we do the same thing with the Bible, but I mean, it's really bad with the church fathers. And it's just a rejection of infant baptism does not equal ignorance of church history. Let me make that clear. Rejection of infant baptism does not equal ignorance of church history. Well, yeah, Oh, true, true. If they really believed that it works, there would be a whole different change of action. I mean, because, man, if I, be- if I believed... Right. I mean, if I, if I believed that all I had to do is take this water, I, I mean, I would, be, I would just stand in front of the church, free daycare, free daycare, free daycare, bring your kid, and I would just stand here. Okay, daycare's over. Daycare's over, okay? Uh, well, that was a short daycare. Well, it's only about two minutes, okay? I just need to say I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you really believe that, put your money where your mouth is, open up daycare, bring the kids in, and baptize them. And so then they have to make all, well, they need godparents, or they need, you know, just stop it. Either it works or it doesn't. Right. And, and where, do you do, uh, where do you develop this elaborate system since the scriptures have literally nothing to say about it? Nothing. 
And then they say, well, baptism replaced circumcision. Well, then only baptize the male babies. Because there were no girls being circumcised in the Old Testament, okay? All right? All right, here we go. Let's go to the next ship. Yeah, I get, oh, we're going to be out of time. We're going to be out of time. All right, there we go. Because now it's going to get to the Red Sea and water from the rock. I mean, he's just going to go looking for every, anytime where, basically what he's going to do, anytime he can find water, <laughs> he's, going, he's going to grab it and say, this pictures it. But already we see a major mistake. Why would you use the flood as a picture of baptism? That's the worst thing I've ever heard of in my life. Everyone who got wet died. The people. And it, and it. <laughs> so, so by that logic here, I'm going to baptize you until you're dead. Okay. Then I'll purge away your sin. I mean, like, the, the flood would be the worst thing I would want to point to. Because the only people who were saved there were not saved in the water. Now, you could argue, I guess if you wanted to say they were saved by the water, but the people saved by the water were the people who were carried by the water inside the ark, okay? <laughs> they were not, because Peter, Peter, this, everyone runs to Peter where it says this baptism now saves you, right? And it connects it to the flood. But you would have to look at that in t- detail to know exactly what Peter is referring to there. All right? But we'll, we'll get into that later. Right, we're going to have to stop there. But yeah, I just, I do get very, I, get, I just get very angry because, I mean, how many chapters are we in now? We're up to chapter 8. Yeah. Uh, we're up to chapter 8. And, and these eight chapters are what? Crazy. Because Joseph crossed his hands? What? He delineated Christ because he crossed his hands. What are you talking about? Okay? Right? I mean, what? The, 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 the ground was moist and juicy? I mean, come on. Right? I mean, like, this is, this is crazy. The, the, the earth was baptized, so this proves salvation. Everyone died. Like, there's just so many issues with it. But I want you to just, the reason I want you to do, well, the reason I'm doing this is, look, I know it's, it's painful to just try to read through it, but this is where you know it. So then nobody can say, well, you should just read the early church. And you can say like Tertullian on baptism. I did. And I, I don't know what you're trying to convince me of because I know this, Tertullian was very different than the, the Didache. So why don't I rely on the Didache and not Tertullian? Why, do you te- why are you going to rely on Tertullian? And not- well, you can say, well, they can say, well, the Didache wasn't complete. According to whom? Maybe that's what baptism was supposed to be. Simple, straightforward. You're instructed, you fast, and you're baptized into water. And Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And moving water, if you can, cold water, well, well, at some point, yes. I mean, that's kind of what their instruction was. It was basically, there, were, there was things that were going to have to memorize, right? And then, uh, and then if you can't, if for some reason you cannot find water, like you're in an arid place, then they said you could pour on the head in the name of the Father. But it was still a pouring, right? I'm not saying it made you fully wet, but it's still seeming to go with the basic idea. That, that's, well, even Tertullian seems to go with that. 
Even Tertullian still has seeming to be submerged or, or, you know, immersed into water. Plunged. I mean, plunged is a pretty strong word. Right, so. Right. So, which is going to follow that, that concept. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Uh, Lord, this uh, frustrating situation that in 2,000 years, nobody can agree on this subject yet. But Lord, let us at least be willing to be honest about the disagreements may not be based off ignorance. It may be just based on which authority we choose to follow. And let the only authority we follow be your word and not picking and choosing from church history. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,